0: Welcome to today's episode of Health Tree Podcast for AML, a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kareth Amen. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibbs, for their support of this Health Tree Podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. Next week on Tuesday, July 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we will be hosting a virtual health tree Roundtables for AML event. We have invited two AML experts to join us, Dr. Uma Barate from the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State University and Dr. Naval Daber from MD Anderson Cancer Center. They will be joining us to give a mid-year update on AML news, emerging novel therapies, new, re- new research and clinical trials. I hope you all will join us for what will be a very informative discussion with plenty of time to ask the doctor's questions. You can register for all of our events by visiting our website, healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Chalice a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now, on to our show today. The TP53 mutation in AML is considered to be a high-risk mutation and occurs in approximately 5 to 10% of patients. This genetic mutation has been difficult to treat, often being chemo-resistant with a poor prognosis. However, there is a lot of research happening in this area with a number of clinical trials and drugs in development. We hope that the continued focus and research holds promise for this very difficult mutation in order to improve outcomes for these patients. Dr. Rory Shallis from the Yale Cancer Center in New Haven, Connecticut is here with us today to help us learn more about the TP53 mutation in AML, the current treatment options available, and which clinical trials to consider as part of your care. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Chalice, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and discuss the TP53 mutation. Before we get started, I'd love to provide an introduction for you. Dr. Shalis is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Chalas is focused on the care and research of patients with myeloid malignancies, particularly acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. He currently serves as either principal investigator or sub-investigator in over a dozen clinical trials with the majority aimed at at improving the outcomes of patients with AML and MDS. Dr. Chalas also conducts research with the Cancer Outcomes Public Policy and Effectiveness Research Center, or COPPER Center, at Yale University. He is an author on more than 75 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, most of which he was first author on, and his work has been published in many prestigious journals. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chalas.
1: Thanks for the invitation and uh, the... (laughs) That very uh, lofty introduction. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I would also like to say, just personally, um, what an amazing cancer center Yale is. Um, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, my husband was diagnosed with CML in blast crisis in November of 2017, which then became uh, relapse refractory AML. Um, and, and though his battle was short and ended just after four months, we spent a lot of time at the Smilo Cancer Center um, with Dr. Stephen Gore and Dr. Amir Zaidan, and the team of doctors and nurses there were so amazing. And I'm really just so grateful for the care we received when we were there. And I can't say enough wonderful things about Yale and the hospital there. So thank you.
1: I have to agree with you. It's a good team. You named, uh, you know, a specific, uh, you know, few, um, but it's a large team that works well together. And it's why I'm happy to be a a part of it.
0: Yes, so many people make up that wonderful team. Okay, let's jump into our questions for today. Start with the basics. Uh, Can you tell us about the TP53 mutation and how you test for it? And are there different types of TP53 mutations?
1: sure uh, good question uh, I like the basics you know set up a foundation for why it's why we're talking about it why it's important um, TP 53 is uh, generally what we call a uh, tumor suppressor gene uh, critical one at that and it's located on a particular area of chromosome 17 you know we have several um, and this is a gene which like many genes encodes in all genes encodes a protein um, which is the p53 protein and this is the actual you know it's doing the dirty work this is basically uh, a protein which responds to a number of uh, of stressors or insults that the cells receive um, this is things like DNA damage and uh, not to get into the weeds about the specifics but it, it's essentially for response uh, responsible for kind of coordinating a lot of that that repair and if you know that repair or that cell really can't be fixed it, uh, it basically Coordinates the cell to itself die. because call this apoptosis. Uh, among many other functions, um, there are a number of mutations. Yes, this is a this is a large gene. Uh, I think it's about 25,000 uh, bases, um, and you know, each base can theoretically be mutated, and there are several mutations that can occur at every base. Um, there is, I I'm probably say, about a, there are thousands of mutations that are possible. Um, not to say that all really kind of behave. The same, but most do. Um, and the way we test for these uh, these mutations, uh, there are several platforms. Uh, probably the the most the most commonly used is what we call next generation sequencing, um, which you know many higher impact centers, including ourselves, we we do uh, in house using our own. Sort of technologies in our own laboratories. Um, other places will use third-party platforms that essentially send it to a place to do the same, the same uh, sequencing of the gene, and it's compared to what you know we would normally expect. And the differences are, are reported to us, um, and uh, that's when we kind of know how to uh, interpret it. There are other me- methods that are you know kind of emerging, and but not quite ready for prime time, I'd say just yet, just because this next-generation sequencing or NGS can take, I mean, there are some rapid panels which take a few days, but some take up to two weeks. And for many patients, uh, this is, you know, um, not quite relevant, but for others, it, it can determine clinical trial candidacy. And uh, I would argue in many cases, the, the, the frontline uh, therapy, which we would argue would be standard for this particular molecular subset. Some of those emerging ways of detecting this earlier, are looking at protein expression. Uh, among the cells uh, in bone marrow specifically. And it does appear to be a pretty good predictor for, you know, the presence of the TP53 mutation.
0: Okay. Um, one thing I feel like there's been quite a bit of discussion about lately is is waiting for all of the cytogenetics to come back before you initiate the treatment. Um, Can you speak briefly about that? Is that something that here in TP53, in the case of TP53, would be important to wait for everything to come back? Or can you start some sort of treatment and then add on potentially? I know I might be getting a little bit ahead, but since we're talking about the testing part.
2: No, no,
1: it's a good question. I think it gets to the larger sort of treatment paradigm that – is evolving. I mean, if you ask maybe 10 years ago when we didn't really, you know, we, I mean, I wasn't really practicing, at least in this subspecialty, um, there wasn't really much um, weight placed upon the biology, at least from the TP53 standpoint or a complex set of genetics. It just, you know, once that data became available with, you know, like I said, it could be one to two weeks later, it just gives the provider a sense that disease is either likely to be stubborn or maybe Offer the opportunity for, you know, other uh, down-the-line treatments. Um, there have been a number of studies which have shown that it is okay to wait to really define the disease biology for many patients. Now, not all patients, there are some patients that, you know, unfortunately present to us quite sick um, with, you know, organ strain, dysfunction, and really with disease which is quite a- aggressive and active and, you know, we really can't wait, in which case we use sort of, you know, our tried-and-true quote-unquote standard options. Um, however, if the patient is doing relatively well, you know, maybe some minor symptomatology, blood counts aren't terribly low to the point where we 're needing transfusions all the darn time there's no concern for for bleeding or um, really trying to intervene upon the disease, then we do actually wait we wait for um as you called it cytogenetics, which is really one half of the, of the of the pie um looking cytogenetics is really evaluating the larger portions of DNA that we call the chromosomes, looking for. Um, uh, duplications, deletions, uh, translocations, these sorts of things, and the number of events that we can find. The other half is looking at more the molecular, more of the, the specific, you know, and you could say point mutations um, in this DNA, uh, of which TP53 is one of the genes that we're, that we're evaluating. Um, if the patient can wait, this is probably the prudent thing to do. Um, one, like we talked about briefly to kind of identify maybe a specific trial that could be available um for that specific disease subset. But two, you know, there are some there is some thinking out there that, you know, patients with this particular disease, PP50 mutated disease, um, might not benefit as much from the quote unquote standard, in which case we might change it a little bit. So um, we do wait um, uh, for most of this data, if not all the data that will kind of inform the frontline treatment decision um, if the patient is safe to wait, which is most patients.
0: Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And um, does TP53 often present with other mutations as well? Just out of curiosity.
1: Uh, actually, it's it's one of the molecular subsets of AML that uh, actually has a low rate of commutation. Um, so we call it TP53 wild-type disease. You know, you're going to find at least one mutation in the disease. I mean, uh, pretty much. Pretty much all all of the AML is going to have at least some abnormality uh, from a cytogenetic standpoint, meaning the chromosomes or the molecular standpoint, meaning you can identify a, a mutation. Most are going to have more than one. Um, TP53 is, is kind of the exception from a mutation standpoint. It does associate with a, a, a significant proportion of what we call complex cytogenetics or complex karyotype, um, including other kind of subtypes among the cytogenetic, uh, you know, um, aspect, but from a mutation standpoint, uh, not so much. In fact, if you're looking at, you know, some of the the classical AML-associated uh, mutations like IDH1, IDH2, FLT3, you're talking in the order of single-digit percent, so it's actually not a heavily, quote-unquote, co-mutated uh, molecular subset. Okay. Okay,
0: and... Uh what are the statistics for the TP53 mutations, like what percentage of patients have it? Is it, and is it more common in a certain demographic of patients?
1: Uh, so these mutations are detected, I think your intro said 5 to 10%. I think that's accurate. Probably it's a say closer to 10%. I guess we're splitting hairs. Um, there are specific subsets of disease for which it's a bit enriched, meaning in which you're going to you know find it at, at a greater rate upwards of like 25, 30 percent. And this is um, generally among patients that have what we call a secondary AML, which is including therapy-related AML. Um, or, you know, this, this term is, it might be a misnomer, but basically disease which is arising out of um, just at least having a history of having received prior chemotherapies and usually particular kinds of chemotherapies and or radiotherapy for things like uh, like breast cancer, lung cancer, which are game changers. Um, and there are other kind of rare subtypes, one of which is acute erythroid leukemia, where nearly kind of all patients, um, you know, will have a TP50 mutation. Um, with regards to demographics, um, not so much, really, at least the number uh, that we can detect, or which I'm aware. Um, so I would say, no, it's not really a, a patient sort of specific factor that can determine a higher likelihood of of having this mutation in the diseased cells. It's more of the disease subtypes.
2: Okay.
0: And why has this mutation historically been difficult to treat, and what are your thoughts on this today?
1: Uh, That is the question, because I guess kind of identifying, (laughs) you know, why this is the case is, hopefully going to foster, you know, the, you know, better science and better therapies to really kind of get, get, get some folks more mileage and put more folks into remission. And of course, that's really one of the first major hurdles to having better disease control, but also hopeful cure. Um, it's, it kind of relates to the biology of the, of the protein itself. I mean, this gene encodes a protein like we discussed, you know, has many functions, um, you know, that relate to you know, pretty important things like DNA damage, oncogene activation, oxidative stress, uh, among a couple others. And, you know, these inputs into that protein are, are really, you know, that then it essentially influences all the downstream things which are pretty critical to having healthy cells, DNA repair, apoptosis, mechanisms of metabolism, translational control, and cell cycle arrest, which kind of all kind of relate in one way or another. Um, and, you know, when this is dysfunctional, um, you know, most of these mutations, uh, and this kind this might be a decent segue into at least why some of the, you know, the the novel therapies that are emerging might not really be perfectly, quote-unquote, targeted. Um, this is, you know, generally a loss of function effect, meaning that, you know, when mutated, this protein is not working, as opposed to other things that we see in AML where they're either overactive and stimulating a pathway. This is one in which where the pathway is done, so it can't really do these functions. Um, so when you're... when when you're giving uh when you're exposing these particular leukemic cells to let's say chemotherapy classical chemotherapy, it sort of kind of it knows how to weather the storm you know it doesn't drive these cells down these pathways to die so it, you know it's actually what we call inherently resistant in many cases uh and this has been shown in really for for decades you know you know really thirty forty years of intensive multis multi cytotoxic agent regimens you know seven plus three is a classic one, and we have a number of other you know Similar combinations, you know, the, the rates of remission are slightly lower, um, but you know, I, I'd say that's probably not as much, a, a not as impactful as really the other half of the more than half. But among patients who are able to get into remission or have their disease go, disease go into remission, it, it, they don't just stay in remission for for very long. It's in the order of, um, you know, in many for many folks, it's 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 months. So uh, that's really, I'd say, the, the higher-level reasoning for why, uh, at least we think why, and it makes sense, you know, this particular molecular subset is just it's just very darn stubborn.
2: Okay.
0: Well, and you started to touch on it a little bit. Let's Let's move into the treatment options. So what are the current standard treatment options available for TP53 mutations?
1: Uh, In brief, uh, so the current standards for this particular disease are the same that are available for AML as a whole. Um, You know, we generally separate them. We dichotomize it into intensive and some people say, you know, non-intensive. I think it's more accurately described as being less intensive. The intensive versions, you know, we mentioned 7 plus 3 briefly which is the combination of tetrabenazine plus an anthracycline uh, this has been a combination since literally the early 1970s you know because it works it's it is a standard for you know literally you know close to a half a century for for a reason there are different sort of iterations or, or you know or modifications to this regimen and new formulations uh, including uh, you know Vixios is the brand name so many others call it CPX 351 uh, these are some of the classical intensive regimens um, but you know the rates of remission probably are you know in the order of anywhere from 20 to 40 ish percent some data sets you know maybe as high as 50 ish um, there are as I was saying less intensive uh, induction options um, which are either as monotherapy or more recently now combinations that are built upon a backbone from uh, on on top of what we call the hypomethylating agents, which is a colloquial term. Many other folks will call it a DNA methyltransferase inhibitor um, or azonucleoside, things like azacitidine or decitabine, um, which are pretty much sister medications, slightly differing mechanisms of action, but generally felt to be equivalent and shown to be equivalent in studies. Um, We, as a community, have, you know, tried different ways of delivering these medications maybe on longer schedules, um, but probably the, the one combination approach has represented, a, I'd say, a paradigm shift for really the, you know, I'd say the sum of, of AML patients, in particular those patients who are regarded as really not being appropriate to accept the risks of intensive therapy, uh, and this is the addition of Venetoclax, which now, at least when combined with azacitidine, is shown in a randomized phase three trial to be superior um however um as you would guess just given you know we talked about previously um and hopefully affirming why i think we regard this as being a stubborn disease the addition of venetoclax doesn't appear to it's not a game changer for this particular disease subset um now you know this doesn't mean that we're unequivocally not offering it i mean this is debate you know among our group tumor boards and you know across the country internationally as well you know what does venetoclax really add so um we're kind of kind of left with the standard things. Um now this doesn't mean that, you know, you know, all hope is lost, but this is certainly evidence for, you know, some of these uh newer um agents to be studied uh, in a clinical trial and of course developing newer ones in the first place. So for that wasn't a, a dissatisfying answer, but I, I do think that's the accurate one. <laughs> no, not at all.
0: Thank you. So when you're treating T P fifty three are patients developing resistance to the standard treatment options, or are the current treatments not getting them into remission? Or maybe it's both.
1: It's probably both. Uh, we do know that, you know, just, again, kind of hearkening back to, you know, why this is, you know, a stubborn disease, which is really related to the fact that P53 protein is important, and when it's not working, the cells just, they can't die, you know. And these are preferentially, the, you know, not preferentially. These are, uh, these are, the proportion of, you know, these are, the tumor cells specifically. Um, so I, I would say that there's inherent resistance. Um, inherent resistance. Now perhaps there are other sort of acquired mechanisms of resistance that um, that develop throughout the course of treatment uh, among this kind of molecular subset, but it's. I'd say that the substantial proportion is really the disease that is just inherently out of the gate, um, kind of resistant. Even though it's somewhat sensitive to the treatment, it's, you know, the longer you expose a patient to treatment, you're essentially going to select out for the cells which have this mutation um, and have this dysfunctional protein. Um, and uh, eventually this becomes the dominant sort of clone within the bone marrow and or blood. And, you know, that's when we kind of, it, you know, heralds the disease either becoming, you know, uh, progressive or relapse among patients who who are fortunate enough to go into at least some form of remission. So it's more inherent resistance, unfortunately.
0: Okay. Okay. And are these patients uh, always recommended for a stem cell or bone marrow transplant if they are deemed fit candidates?
1: Oh, man, that's that's an important question, uh, one that I think uh, it probably you know, stirs up as much debate as, well, what is the appropriate frontline strategy? Um, now, patients that have, as 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 a whole, patients that have poor or adverse risk AML are generally recommended to be considered for the uh, transplant, and we're talking about an allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant as part of their consolidation strategy. Um, this, you know, consolidation is the face of this, uh, treatment, which... Um, comes after induction, after a remission, you know, has hopefully been induced. Consolidation is really building upon the, that remission, mostly because, and unfortunately it took about, you know, 35, 40 years of, of time and, and patience to, to realize that you can't stop an induction. Um, and you know, the, the, this, the subset of disease, you know, about which we're talking is the one which, as we talked about briefly, is the one which even among patients that are in remission, they're not likely to stay in there for very long. So maybe if you're going to use you know a pretty good consolidative modality or strategy like this transplant uh you should use it as soon as you can um you know the rub is that you know a lot of patients are not reasonable candidates you know either because they're not you know uh, able to accept the risks of the intensive therapy uh two they either don't achieve remission or or to be don't stay in remission long enough to actually get the transplant planned and three unfortunately you know there are some patients, I have a handful of patients that you know have achieved those two things we talked about, but they don't have the third, and that's having a, a suitable donor available, um, which can be improved at the moment that is that is a deficit um, for many patients. Um, now, in talking about this specific molecular subset, yes, this is an adverse unequivocal adverse risk disease subset, so you you generally think that fine, you know this is let's go with transplant this is you know the one molecular subset of disease where there is debate about whether does it really provide benefit this disease is pretty darn stubborn so you know are we really moving the needle Um, you know having patients go through you know a non trivial procedure that does carry morbidity and you know an appreciable risk of mortality and for some folks it's not low um, putting them through this for you know uh, an unclear but probably not very high chance of really benefiting uh, let alone being cured of the disease now, I'm not an nihilist about this. There are there are some you know providers out there which say you know what is it really worth it? Um, I, I'd probably take a guess that most of us in the community uh, you know as leukemia specialists would still offer it and say that maybe it at least provides some benefit. And there have been some analyses, some of which you know we've been a part of that um, this is difficult to really account for analytically from a methodologic standpoint. To because there are a lot of biases and things for which you have to really you know be mindful of when looking at a comparison. Um, but there does appear to be at least among those patients who can get the transplant, um, you know, a a benefit. So I would say, yes, they should be strongly considered. Um, And two, if it's possible or feasible, um, it is generally recommended. There are some, uh, there is some nuance to that, you know, and if you want to talk about it, we can say, you know, briefly that, you know, there are some, there is some thinking or some data out there to suggest that the, the, the depth of remission might inform whether or not transplant is worth it or a patient's likely to benefit depth of remission mostly being defined. This is kind of in an exploratory research sense at the moment, uh, being defined as, well, can you detect the mutation anymore? You know, for the patient who was in remission and you're using the same techniques that detected it at the, at the gate, can, if it has a quote unquote disappeared, even though you're probably, you know, it hasn't disappeared. It's just kind of, kind of, uh, kind of get below the level of detection. You know, the, The iceberg is still there, but it's at least below the surface a little bit. Those patients that are getting a good response might be the ones who are more likely likely to benefit from transplant. So that was a lengthy answer, but um, there was a lot to unpack there. Sorry.
0: No, that's okay. So would that be with uh, MRD testing or minimal residual disease testing after induction? Correct.
1: At the time point at which we test is still debated, as is whether or not this is this is a, a real thing. I mean, there are limited analyses which show that you know we're talking maybe a dozen or a couple dozen patients in some analyses, which oh these are the folks that tend to do better. They their disease you know we can no longer detect the mutation based on you know kind of the classical platforms, which do have a limit. You know the general accepted limit is you know anywhere from three to five percent, so meaning you know out of a hundred leukemia cells, um, you know if 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 the mutation is actually in two of them, you might not detect it, so even though it's still there. So there is some limitation in really saying that that is, you know, how providers should really be using it. But uh, to answer your question, uh, yes, uh, MRD testing by way of NGS, or next-generation sequencing. And
0: given understanding that there are risks associated with transplant as well, uh, what are the typical responses to the transplant, and are there therapies that are being looked at to help a patient either before or after a stem cell transplant?
1: Good question, and I have to be honest—you asked a direct one, so I'll give you a direct answer. Uh, if you're looking at some of the largest data sets, you know uh, that have. Kind of describe the outcomes of patients who are fortunate to who are fortunate enough to get to some form of, of response or remission, fortunate enough to get to the transplant um, there's still yeah. some nuance as to well what kind of transplant and you know what kind of donor et cetera um, it's uh, the rates of cure are low um, I, I will tell you it's probably no higher than twenty percent and that might be an ambitious an ambitious sort of uh, estimate it's um, in some cases it, it's it's much lower um, other groups have shown that it might be better in some circumstances, like we talked about some of the pre-transplant sort of metrics. Um, now, uh, this is not to say that you know that doesn't apply to everybody. Um, there are some patients who surprise us um, in a in a favorable way, in a favorable way, and others um, in, in the opposite direction. Um, so yeah. that's what I would probably tell you is the is the estimate that I would offer. Um, would you mind repeating the second question? I forgot.
0: Uh, well, I was wondering if there was any therapies that they're looking at to to try to do before the transplant or after the transplant in order to you know improve upon the outcomes.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that's an important question. And actually, this is um, this gets to uh, really the you could say the third phase of AML management, which is not you know uh, uh, which is not really incorporated into. I'd say most patient strategies, and this is the maintenance phase. Um, maintenance, um, probably most relevant at least in this population for patients who are have gone through a transplant, mostly because uh, this is a disease which is adverse risk, so either the patient has embarked on a probably less intensive therapy, which is indefinite uh, and continuous until one of two things happens. One, either the treatment is clearly not working, or two, it works and then eventually stops working, um, or... The other scenario would be, yes, the intention is to proceed to transplant, get the patient there, um, and then, and then see what happens. I mean, there are there's immunosuppression and really just trying to strike the balance between the graft, you know, staying in place and not causing problems and putting pressure on disease, but not really prompting or promoting too much graft versus host disease, which can be dangerous, um, but in many cases reasonably controlled. Um, after that period has kind of passed, this is a this is a setting in which um maintenance has been studied. Um for actually, you know, a number of years. There have been a, num- a number of um yeah, I'd say relatively smaller trials because this is an already uncommon subset and you know, it's not very common for, for patients to really uh I say it's not it's not it's most patients don't get the transplant, I tell you. So it's an uncommon of an uncommon. But in smaller studies um, people have tried to study maintenance uh, azacitabine, maintenance decitabine. These are the hypomethylating agents or methyltransferase inhibitors, as we had uh, mentioned, it, as part of the frontline strategy approach. Um, and, you know, comparative studies are a bit limited. Some have shown that, yes, there might be a quote-unquote benefit. Um, most of this is relegated to what we call single-arm studies, so you're not really doing a comparative trial of maintenance versus no maintenance, and, you know, you see which kind of group of patients does better. Um, some of the novel agents or newer agents, um, are also being studied either as single agent or in combination, usually with a hypomethylating agent, and have shown what I would call as what I would describe as being, I'd say, encouraging uh, outcomes, mostly because it's non-comparative, non-randomized data. So, uh, yes, maintenance uh, is being studied, and whether it sh- is being offered to all patients, probably not, and should it be, this is still debated, but I would probably venture to guess that um, Many leukemia specialists and transplant uh, physicians or teams are considering it, and probably most patients are getting some form.
0: Great. Okay. So let's talk about some of those drugs that are in development that have shown encouraging results to target the TP53 mutation. So I'll just let you go ahead and talk about whichever ones you'd like to discuss
1: free rein uh, okay sure so yeah um, it's kind of a grab bag actually mostly because um, you know going back to one of the things we talked about in comparison to other types of, of driving lesions basically mutations that are kind of like acting like an on switch and and really allowing these leukemia leukemic stem cells and leukemia cells to keep doing what they're doing which is bad obviously um, you know, we had drugs which can you know, reasonably and selectively bind to those on switches and turn it off, and that's how patients can derive benefit, you know, and, and it does modify the disease as best we understand it. This is a bit different, mostly because, you know, this is a protein which is critical. It does a lot of jobs that kind of keep the cell healthy, essentially, and when it's not there, at least in a functioning sense, um, the cells can pretty much stay malignant. And are at that point kind of inherently chemo-resistant to you know available therapies. So, as you can imagine, there have been some efforts to really target this protein and try to really change the way it's kind of folded. So there are small molecule uh, quote-unquote inhibitors that you know uh, have at least been hypothesized to restore it to what we call a wild-type conformation. Um, and you know there have been a number of uh, of products. Probably the one which got i I'd say most press over the last few years is one which was previously known as APR246, now it's known as Um And there were a couple of uh, initial single-arm studies, Phase 1B2 trials, which showed that, hey, there's, a, there's, a, there's clearly some impressive uh, outcomes for these patients. And, you know, uh, um, there, there were some randomized uh, data in the MDS space, which were a little disappointing, but... Um, uh, you can say well, maybe that wasn't the same disease that can itself be debated um, And maybe there were some reasons as to why those patients weren't doing as well, you know as compared to these kind of the standard uh, uh, um, Comparator arm treated patients um, This is a drug which you know now probably is, is best regarded as not being a, a mutant p 53 protein refolder or reactivator um, it's now more likely uh, um, acting upon disease and a, a number of other mechanisms, one of which is called ferroptosis, which has really been discovered over the last five years and, you know, might be another uh, sort of uh, realm to investigate for other therapies. Um, this drug is still being studied in, in a number of settings, um, including the maintenance uh, setting as well, for which there were some, some recent and, I would say, generally encouraging data presented. Um, but this is a drug which has kind of slowed down in enthusiasm just because of the things we talked about. There are other companies out there which are, you know, kind of trying to piggyback that science and developing other what we call oral uh, small molecule reactivators. Um, some for particular mutations, the, the one which is a bit classic in this sense is the Y220C mutation. Um, not a lot of these uh, are present in AML, but um, maybe this will be kind of moved into the AML space quite soon. Uh, I'd say from a excitement standpoint, most of what has um, kind of garnered our attention as community Uh, are those therapies which are really leveraging the immune system, Um, which, you know, if you think about it, it's what transplant's really doing. It's, you know, transplant is thought to really exert its benefit for most patients via um, a graft-versus-leukemia effect, which is essentially, um, you know, these are adoptively transferred donor T cells, which are, you know, a good deal of the immune system. Um, So can we really do other things to kind of activate it or kind of retrain the immune system to kind of find these tumor cells? One of the more I'd say exciting uh, uh, things that um, at least from the TPP3 AML, AML space uh, are those agents which influence uh, the, what, we've known, what was known as the CD47 or SERP-alpha axis. Um, CD47 is a transmembrane protein which uh, we regard it's, it's sort of uh, called the don't eat me signal which interacts with macrophages which are um, a part of the immune system which really engulf or swallow and get rid of um, things that are targeted for destruction, including tumor cells. Um, CD47, it's, it's found to be expressed on normal cells, but it's overexpressed, um, and that's why it's a better target um, on malignant cells from a number of tumor types, including AML. Um, so there are a number of products out there that are being studied. The one which is probably furthest along is one known as Magrolimab, which is a humanized uh, anti-CD47 uh, IgG4 monoclonal antibody, um, promising uh, uh, efficacy data um, in single arm studies to date. In fact, you know the some of the initial data cuts on, on on the single arm studies showed that the median overall survival of treated patients was basically around a year, which is you know sorry to say about double what we expect with kind of the standard stuff at the moment. Uh, but this you know was a relatively smaller study, single arm, and like many of those studies has to kind of be replicated um, and I'd say confirmed in a in a randomized trial. Um, and fortunately, there are randomized trials going on. There's one combining it mm-hmm. with sort of our standard approach, being azacitidine and venetoclax. Um, this is for unselected patients, meaning patients that you know have TP, you know have disease which has TP three, others that don't. Um, and uh, there's another trial which is hopefully going to be launched soon, of which uh, we're leading. Um, that is going to look at a, a similar doublet combination of. Of venetoclax but with the oral formulation of a of a hypomethylating agent known as the uh, basically oral decitabine with magrolimab um, and this is going to be run through the NCI uh, study which I will hopefully be leading uh, uh, nationally maybe internationally as well so um, those are probably um, some of the two that which I say got the most press there are other anti CD47 agents out there um, you know the clinical data for such is maybe not as kind of uh, mature just yet um, one other um, well, there are a couple, but I'd say if we're talking about the immune system, there's one that we probably can't ignore, and this is the TIM 3 inhibitor. TIM 3 is another sort of non-classical immune checkpoint. Uh, I think it stands for um, T-cell immunoglobulin and mucin-3 domain uh, inhibitor, and this is what was previously known as MBG453 or sabatolimab. now. You know, these drugs eventually get kind of fancier names. Um, and in combination with azacitidine, mostly in patients that have higher risk MBS, which is sort of, I would argue, you know, very similar, uh, very similar to AML. I mean, I think the distinction is sort of being blurred now, but among patients that have that specific disease, pretty good rates of remission uh, among uh, among patients that have TP52 TP mutated disease, and this is a drug which is um, in the near future going to be moved into more TP53-specific uh, uh, studies. Um, other drugs like, you know, there are anti-CD123 bispecific antibodies um, that have, you know, shown some promise, but... Um, this is another class of medications, which is still kind of being flushed out with regards to uh, toxicity, administration schedule, which is a big one, uh, and I would say inconvenience for many patients. Um, so I would say, compared to let's say five years ago, um, a lot more movement and a lot more reason to be optimistic that, uh, as I have recurrently said, the needle might be moved for patients afflicted with this, um, you know, arguably very stubborn and terrible disease. Okay.
0: So, are there are there still currently uh, trials going on for efrenetapopt right now that that patients can join, or is that kind of not? Are those kind of cooled off now?
1: Uh, there are trials that are still ongoing. Uh, I, I don't foresee any new trials that will be launched, but uh, I'll, I'll defer that to to the the company that that makes the product. Uh, there are. Mm-hmm. Active trials, I'd say the one which is probably most active is in the maintenance phase and ones that are looking at it for for folks that probably don't have a path to transplant. But um, this is still uh, in flux. Um, I I don't foresee this drug really, um, I'd say, uh, being used in any sort of newer combinations for frontline treatment in AML. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I certainly have, ha- have heard the most at the different medical conferences about uh, megrolimab. Uh, I've heard a lot of uh, the trials about that as well. Um, so, Correct, so a lot more trials current... with regard to megrolimab, a
1: lot more trials.
0: Okay. So, so far as your thoughts on patients, TP53 mutated patients participating in clinical trials, When do you think a trial should be considered and should all TP53 patients consider joining the trial?
1: The answer is yes. Um, You know, fortunately, increasing understanding of the mechanisms of of this disease as it's chemo chemo resistance have fostered, you know, promise for more effective therapies. Um, But that combined with, hey, we have no, the standard of care for this, for this disease is, 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 is argued and We don't really know and I think hopefully you'd agree by now after you know this last uh, bit of discussion that they are insufficient so I would say the standard of care would be a clinical trial Um, frontline to you know throughout the patient journey but certainly starts with the frontline treatment right to get it into remission so clinical trial I'd say is the standard of care
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and so far as finding clinical trials can you talk a little bit about that um, I mean, obviously, they patients should talk to their doctors. But what if a trial is at another hospital and not the trial, uh, not the hospital you're currently being treated at? How, how would that work?
1: It can work in a number of ways, and this is uh, this is a common question that that we get. I mean, we I see among other other you know providers in our group, see many many uh, patients that are looking for second, if not third and fourth opinions. Um, or if they're seeing me for the first time, you know, as a specialist, uh, you know, or should I, should I seek a second opinion? Uh, I always say yes. In fact, I, I can't think of a reason as to why I, I would not at least encourage that. There are some situations in which um, in which maybe, you know, the disease is kind of active and we might not have the time for someone to leave the clinic and, you know, how, God knows how long it's going to take to get to see another, another provider at another, you know, or another specialist at a, at a higher impact center. Um, that could take weeks, and by the time they come back to me and we communicate with that provider, the, you know, the disease might have caused a lot more problems that maybe could have been prevented. Um, but yes, so this is something that is encouraged. Um, and I, I'd say that the logistics of how to achieve that really depend on location. Uh, I, I think I'm fortunate to be practicing in the Northeast where there is a, a heavy concentration of, of, of centers that have good doctors and good teams. And, and fairly large clinical trial portfolios, and you know access you know to these centers is, is pretty easy to accomplish. Um, I would probably venture to guess that most centers are actually open to a phone call uh, and saying, "I'd like to see an opinion, you know seek a second opinion um, in, in some cases, you know we do you know engage it's a small community actually, and we do engage with other providers, and you know the provider uh, his or her, uh, his or herself can actually kind of coordinate that uh, that second or third opinion um, People who are probably um, in an area of the country that maybe are not, a, that's not as uh, kind of robustly constituted by, by centers, you know, that have leukemia specialists might uh, have more difficulty. Um, and this is not only from like an access standpoint, but really, you know, travel and say there is a trial that's open. Um, you know, some trials do require uh, quite a bit. i like to think we're actually getting better about designing trials that align with the standard of care and don't place too much of a burden upon the patient, where they have to get you know extra blood work or extra bone marrow[s] to the point where they're traveling many, many extra hours in, in the week. Which maybe over time does improve as the patient, you know, you know, progresses on treatment uh, in a good way. Um, so this can look a number of ways, but it certainly starts with at least establishing with a provider and I would say establish with someone who would be a leukemia specialist and this is a person who you know knows what's available in the clinical trial portfolio at at that center and uh is very likely to know other folks at, at surrounding centers and that can be helped uh from a coordination standpoint so this comes down to being plugged in
0: and communicating well and asking yeah yes I think you you hit on two really important points um we talk about uh, here at HealthTree the importance of finding a specialist, and though that can sometimes be difficult if you're in more rural areas, um, we do have a list of specialists on our on our website, on the HealthTree website, that can help with that. Uh, we also have a clinical trial finder tool on our website because I know that for, for me, uh, when when we were going through this with my husband, the clinicaltrials.gov website is extremely hard to navigate as, as a layperson. So um, at HealthTree, we have tried to make it easier to find clinical trials with a, a tool that allows you to enter different search criteria with mutations and different drugs. So um, I, I hope that people find that helpful because I would have found it extremely helpful when we were going through this diagnosis as well, so thank you for mentioning those things. So, what do you think are the main challenges and questions that remain with the treatment of TP53 mutation? I guess, what do you think needs to happen in order to move the needle on this mutation?
1: Uh, I'd say it's it's a marriage of two things one is better science, you know, and this is happening I'm not disparaging, you know, uh, our scientific investigators because this is what fosters Better agents and thus better trials to tell us, you know, is this is this working for our patients? Um, And that's really the second second half, you know, the trials, you know, as they accrue patients and patients get treated and you know Through many trials especially of this nature we 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 get more information we get more data so maybe some of those even some of those extra blood works or extra bone marrow biopsies are helping us learn. Um, And it is, it's cyclic and it's a very, you know, healthy interaction between science and trial. So uh, it's, it's both. And that really also requires what requires commitment from, in many cases, uh, you know, certain funding sources, including the federal government, which is, you know, certainly on board with this, with this mission. Um, Clinical trials have to be available, right? So you can have, you can have all the money, you can have all the science, um, you need investigators to actually feel comfortable and uh, you'll be motivated to, to 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 perform and execute them. Um, and I do think that's there. I mean, there is, the last few years, there's, there's been a whirlwind recognition uh, and enthusiasm for, for really trying to kind of push this space further and really help people that have had, you know, for the last, you know, many, many years, have not really had much to look forward to. Um, so I would say it's just the wider availability of trials and probably trials that are more, Specifically designed for this disease, uh, and over the last few years, that that has been the case. So uh, that's uh, that's how I see this kind of um, kind of being moved forward towards the positive.
0: Okay, and specifically in in your practice, is there something that you recommend to patients that have been diagnosed with TP fifty three mutated AML besides clinical trials? Is there anything these patients can do to remain proactive about their disease?
1: Uh, I think you've answered it in the latter half of that question. Uh, proactive. I mean, it's it's a, it's a vague term, and it means different things for different people, um, but that's really up to the provider um, that's, you know, sitting before the patient in the clinic room or maybe it's in the hospital, and hopefully with family members or friends that can really serve as that, that support, uh, you know, for encouraging and really assuring that, you know, that proactive nature is, you know, initiated and maintained, proactive in a sense of staying fit as best one can. You know, we see many patients that, you know, are not marathon runners, but hey, they walk one or two miles a day. That is healthy. Uh, That's more than I do in a day. And to be honest, it probably does foster, uh, you know, getting through treatment a bit better, eating a healthier diet, um, you know, it's probably one of the more common questions we get is, well, what should I be eating? What should I be taking? Should I take multivitamins? Should I not be taking this agent X or over the counter this? Um, and you know, my answer not to be, it's not, it's hopefully it's never dismissive. But you know, if, if there was something I would, if there was a pill that, you know, that's not chemotherapy, if there was a pill, I would give it to you. If there was a specific diet. I would tell you, I mean, I'd be doing it myself as well. Um, so the best answer we have is being proactive with exercise, um, to the point of not pushing oneself over the edge, but. Pushing one, pushing oneself a little bit to the point where they stay conditioned, stay fit. So if there was, you know, God forbid, some sort of, you know, uh, you know, adverse, uh, you know, some side effect, and treat them like an infection, um, you know, patients are more likely to have that cardio-pulmonary and organ function reserve uh, to kind of get through it, maybe a bit easier. Um, so that's my answer. But I agree with you. Being proactive is, is, in my experience, critical.
2: Okay.
0: Thank you. Okay. I'd like to open it up now for caller questions. If you have questions about anything Dr. has discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press one on your keypad. So I'll just give it a second here. Okay. It looks like we have a caller that ends with 1034. I will unmute you, and you can ask your question. Go ahead, Carla. Dr.
3: Charles. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this show today. It's very helpful. So I'm, I have a question, or several questions, actually. So when do patients mostly develop this mutation? Is it from the get-go? I know you mentioned it in all different, you know, relapse patients and newly diagnosed patients, but when is it mostly developed? Just over time? And then, are any do any therapies cause this mutation?
1: Uh, thanks. I didn't catch your name, but thanks thanks for the question or questions. Um, so, I would say, you know, it depends on how you define develop. Um, I'm not trying to be evasive, but it's more likely than not. I would say that this mutation is probably kind of buried in disease um, and doesn't really become. Acquired. I mean, it, there there are some diseases in which you know it is acquired down the road with using you know advanced your techniques, but probably in most cases, um, if it's not detected at the outset, depending on you know the biology of the disease, it probably rears its head uh, later as you know the disease is proving that it's not quite um, chemo sensitive. Um, so it's a mix of both, as we talked about earlier, um, and uh, I don't know if it really influences. Uh, outcomes either way. It probably doesn't change our management, but certainly if it's not detected you know, at, at the outset using conventional techniques, that, of course, will change things. Um, with regards to things which are more likely to be associated with uh, C three mutated disease, uh, yeah, uh, yes, the answer is yes. There are uh, specific exposures, I think is what you asked that, uh, about, that uh, I'm working to associate with this, and this is really related to, uh, I'd say, therapy-related disease. Um, therapy, um, and I'm talking about therapy. I'm really meaning prior chemotherapy exposure, which I'm not. I, I'm not saying was the wrong decision, of course. Patients that receive radiotherapies, chemotherapies, hopefully have had an honest conversation with their provider for whatever tumor was being treated, um, that there is an appre- a nominal but appreciable risk of developing these types of diseases like MDS and AML. Um, so radiotherapy and certain chemotherapies are more likely to um, be associated uh, with um, this specific subtype of disease um, when compared with kind of, you know, um, among uh, AML patients as a whole. Um, Beyond that, it's, you know, kind of uh, lesser data, but there are some non-therapeutic exposures as well, like accidental, or you could even say weaponized radiation. You know, we learned this from uh, you know, unfortunately years of study from uh, individuals who were exposed to the atomic uh, you know blasts uh, in Japan in the 1940s. Um, and there are other exposures which are probably still kind of being teased out. And I probably wouldn't say you know something like smoking, for instance. I probably wouldn't say strongly that that is uh, you know definitively enriched for tp P52 mutated disease. Um, but that is an excellent question, and it's a common question we get in the clinic as well.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, one more question, if you don't mind. Because I know a book was written about TP53. Like, this is a big cross-cancer kind of mutation. So I'm just wondering if any other findings have been helpful um, in other cancers that are helpful to you in AML.
1: Uh, I think you're right. Was it Genome? Right? Genome was written 20 years ago. Um, And you're right. No,
3: there was was an actual TP53 book written. Like, it was a popular book. It was yeah, I'll have to look it up, but I can't
1: remember the name. Me too. Um, yeah, I maybe mean, we actually didn't discuss. I mean, it's it's worthwhile to note that you know this mutation is the most recurrently identified across all tumor types. It's about thirty percent of all tumors. Um, AML is a bit less, like ten percent, like we mentioned. But um, this is a mutation which is you know, um, been the subject of a lot of attention and the target of of, of much study. Um, with regards to AML as a whole, um, you know, other tumor types that are kind of fostering, uh, you know, maybe a better understanding of, uh, of AML biology and how to address it. Um, I'd say it's limited. Um, most of what we're learning might actually apply to other kinds of leukemias, like lymphoplastic leukemia as well, um, looking at MLL or kmt 2 re- a rearranged disease, which can affect both AML and ALL. Um, but solid tumor to the AML uh, space, uh, at least translating the science, um not a whole lot, I would say, of which I'm aware, um, other than maybe some of the molecule, the small molecule inhibitors that are hopefully um, going to be entering the AML space in study that are thought to kind of refold and reactivate it. I mentioned one earlier, um, similar to uh, APR246 or epigen- Um So that uh, hopefully wasn't a, a terrible answer, but I'm definitely look forward to the things to come.
3: No, that's a great answer, and I appreciate it. And that book name is called P fifty three, the Gene that Cancer Code. That's what I was thinking of. Anyway, thank you thank so you. much. We, I so appreciate your um, time in doing this show today.
1: Thank you.
0: Okay, we have uh, hopefully have. Uh, time for a couple more um, caller questions. I have a call from 7608. I will unmute you, and you can ask your question now. 7608.
2: Hi. This is Diane Long Island, New York. I have two questions. I'm a AML R&R post-transplant TP53. The first question as I did research was that they're looked at Avor Statins, so looking at Statins at Kansas University since 2018. And I wondered if you've known of any success with the, uh, using Statins for TP53 AML.
1: Hi, Diane. Uh, yes, I, I'm aware of the data uh, of which you're speaking. And uh, I'd probably tell you that that is probably not really close to being ready for prime time and certainly should not influence any decisions to, you know, out of the gate take you know, a form of statin. Um, I think you had mentioned one. I'm aware of other data for atorvastatin. This is preclinical data and does not apply at the moment to patients with uh, this mutation in AML. Um, Statins, I mean, it's a great medication, and there are certainly, you know, reasons to take it, um, you know, to gain benefit. Um, But this is not one of them uh, at the moment. In fact, it might just predispose you to side effects that you don't have to accept.
2: So the data is not good for statins or TP53 AML yet?
1: Uh, keyword on yet. I wouldn't say the data is not good. I would say there's an absence of data.
2: Okay. My second question has to do with, what about, did you look at Jane McLellan's Starving Cancer book where she was a physician who used doxycycline, ISADs, and IV vitamin C to help her with her TP53 AML?
1: I'm not aware of that book. Um, i certainly wouldn't advocate for starving yourself. I would actually advocate for eating a, a healthy and well-balanced diet as we discussed previously because that is probably what's going to, you know, put you or, you know, someone else in your sh- in similar shoes, uh, you know, on a better path to really getting through certain types of therapies. I think you could mention vitamin C, which is being studied um, in a number of spaces and more recently in the MDS space um, in a particular subtype of MDS, I would say. Um, and for which we don't really have the clinical data available just yet. So I, I really, again, similar to your first question, can't advocate uh, or really support, um, you know, any any additions from like a you, know, a, you know, an over-the-counter standpoint with regards to, you know, statins, which is not over the, over-the-counter, but also vitamin C. I'm um, not aware of that book, but I will
2: look into it. Yeah. How to, how to Starve Cancer, Jane McLellan. So, so I've been studying clinical trials a great deal because I've relapsed. And and refractory and I really like Magrolimbab, so I think I'm going to be talking to you about your study at Yale
1: we could talk about that uh, okay. offline. That'd be great.
0: I'm sorry I think that's all the time we have for questions today um, and the caller with the 0911, um, feel free to email me your question. It's keres, K-E-R-I-T-H, at healthtree.org, and I will uh, refer your question to Dr. Chalice. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Dr. Chalice, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share thank your you. incredible expertise with us. We would love to have it you on the privilege show. It a an honor. Sometime. Thank you. And we wish you all the best in your clinical practice and your future research endeavors.
1: Thank you again so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone.